Hi, I'm Mark Chavez. I'm one of the hosts of Let's Make a, a comedy docuseries podcast about the creative process. Each season, my co-hosts, Ryan Beal, Maddie Kelly, and I, take on an artistic challenge and you follow our journey. In Let's Make a Sci-Fi, we wrote a science fiction TV pilot. In Let's Make a Rom-Com, we wrote a romantic comedy film. And on our latest season, Let's Make a Horror, we produced a horror short film. And when we run into trouble, we interview Hollywood experts. People who have worked on big things like The Blair Witch Project, The Office, Star Wars, Mamma Mia, and more. All three seasons of Let's Make a are available now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. All right, get in here, have a seat, get comfy. It's the end of the week, which means it's time to talk about the biggest pop culture stories. Today on the podcast, did we really need to make Mean Girls, the musical, the movie? The group chat is here, and they have strong feelings about this one. Let's go. I'm Elamine Abdul-Mahmoud. This is Commotion. Okay, we are going to start with this. May I have everyone's attention, please? We have a new student. What's up, Kitty? Are you trying to make the rest of us feel dumb? I'm not trying to. It's just happening. Dear God, woman. Get in, loser. Regina George is a scum-sucking lifer in her. Why is he by our table? I can hear you, by the way. Can you hear me now? We're gonna make her pay. Girls are made deranged by what's called hormones. W-H-O. What is going on? Don't worry about it. That is the trailer for the new Mean Girls remake. The new Mean Girls is out today in theaters. Look, I'm supposed to do the thing where I remind you what Mean Girls is. But I kind of find it implausible that you don't remember the original movie. I mean, it's as close as you can get to a millennial teen movie classic. This is... This is the movie that made Lindsay Lohan and Rachel McAdams household names, with all due respect to The Notebook. This is the movie that made Fetch happen. It's the reason we say, on Wednesdays we wear pink. Ah, so many references. You go, Glenn Coco. She doesn't even go here. October 3rd, that's Mean Girls Day. The point is, Mean Girls has become this massive reference point for millennials. In 2017, Mean Girls was made into a musical, and today... In theaters right now, the musical has been made into a movie. We're going to get into it. This and the other big stories this week. Nico Stratus is here. Sarah Ty Black is here. Cassie Cow is here. What's up, y'all? Welcome to Commotion. Let's do this. Hi. Hello. Listen, okay, you've all seen the movie. I've seen the movie. Nico, I'm going to start with you. you. What did you like about this Mean Girls remake? It's funny that this is a Tina Fey thing because I'm like going to be like, I feel like Liz Lemon trying to like say like, <laughs> well, the lights were nice. Like, <laughs> I think that like the cast was great. There was a lot of it. Like it was like fun and charming. And like, I, I, I liked so many pieces in it where so often I was, I almost felt like I was being hoodwinked into enjoying myself because it was, <laughs> there was a lot of pieces in it that I really liked and the lighting was was fun. I, I gotta say, when you say I've been hoodwinked into into enjoying myself, it just sounds like you enjoyed yourself. Like that's what I hear. I, did in, when you... I enjoyed myself in fits and starts. So I will say that. Yeah. <laughs> that's all life is, Nico, is enjoying ourselves in fits and starts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cassie, let's talk about this cast. Okay. Instead of Lindsay Lohan and Rachel McAdams, this time around we've got Angry Rice and Renee Rapp playing Katie and Regina, <laughs> respectively. How do you think they did? 
I think they did do a really good job. I did I did actually really enjoy the cast. I will say I just think it's a monumental task to take on those parts that were made so iconic mm. by Lindsay Lohan and Rachel McAdams. For me, I mean, I grew up, I was in the Mean Girl era when Mean Girls came out. I was fully in high school. Like I was there when the- I I was in the trenches. I was going through it. So I don't think they would ever replace it for me. But I want to say, especially Renee Rapp, I thought did a really uh, personal take on Regina George that wasn't just Mm -hmm. like an impression of what Rachel McAdams was doing. And I really respected that for her. I, I, I'm interested in, in the way that you just described that because to me, like when I think about Mean Girls, the original movie, I kind of think it did the same thing equally for both Lindsay Lohan and Rachel McAdams. And when I watch this movie, I don't think it did the same thing for Andrew, uh, for Andrew Rice that it did for Renee Rapp. I mean, Renee Rapp is the star of this show. This is the Renee Rapp kind mm-hmm. of show. And to me, I just found her performance so compelling that every time that she was on screen, I was like, oh, of course she's going to be like the next star. Did you feel the same way, Cassie? I definitely think that split was uh, really noticeable. And I think it really did come down to, um, I think Angori Rice was doing like a lot of service to the part that uh, Lindsay Lohan was had already laid down and was kind of staying really true to that character in a way that wasn't as new or as like personal. Whereas I think Renee Rapp really just went all out for what she thought it would be. And I think it came out quite different than Rachel McAdams interpretation. Mm -hmm. I, uh, my big take on Angoria Rice's performances in general is that like every time I see her, I just see her and I go, Oh, that's someone who's acting. Like it's very visible that there's effort (laughs) going into acting, whereas opposed to like, most of the other people in this in this movie where that effort kind of disappeared. Sarah Ty, we got to say this is a remake that is an ode to the original f- movie, but also the Broadway musical that followed it. Last time you were here, we talked about The Color Purple, The Color Purple remake, which was also made into a musical. Sarah Ty, did this big screen Mean Girls musical work for you? Listen, what <laughs> is going on with the songs in this musical (laughs) what is going on what is going on go ahead go off this is the kind of musical that is meant for a very particular kind of musical liking person (laughs) someone who is very young someone who is probably white someone who loves glee i like don't really know how this is going to go over with kids who are the age that i was same as cassie watching original mean girls because mean girls was like a little bit bad you know and this is very like the songs at least are very disnified the like arrangements the lyrics the vibes they're so like disruptive to the flow of the movie and every time I found myself like settling in I was like oh, oh here we go again here we go again with another song and like it was very much like I'm Roxy Andrews and I'm here to make it clear but like at least that in itself is camp and this is not and like at least with the color purple, it had its moments, you know, like I did like a little internal sky punch when Danielle Brooks and Sophia like broke out in song on that, like all my life I had to fight that yeah. famous quote. Yeah. But here it was just so twee, so earnest, so sincere, very not mean girls. And I've seen little Snapchats on TikTok of audiences booing every time a song starts. And I don't blame them because that was me. Uh, first of all, d- is it possible? You correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah Ty. Is it possible you're just not a musical person? Like, is that- I knew you were going to say that because you think that I'm just a hater. No, I just like certain musicals. I like intense musicals. I like Jesus Christ Superstar. If you're not giving me like 
Carl Anderson's Judas in the motion picture adaptation. You're not doing a musical. You're not. This is a run through. Sarah Talia has not been I, I happy will, with a musical. I, musical. Made I will into say I love. Time. Go ahead, Cassie. I, I will say I love all musicals, no matter how bad they are. And in this one, I can't even remember a single song. Nothing was really. I couldn't take anything home. I would have loved to belt it out like a high school musical and they wouldn't give it to me. It was so upsetting. Nico, what's your take on this? I mean, as 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 a white person, uh, this they also didn't really speak to me. <laughs> uh, I just, they were kind of like, I like what Sarah Ty said. Like, they're just kind of toothless. Like, I just sort of was like, these are nothing. There's just like, they were just kind of, I, I always felt like I was about to have to buy something. <laughs> <laughs> I I strongly disagree with all of you because I actually like a lot of these songs really worked for me and I when we logged on to our pre-show chat you guys were making fun of the uh, Regina George introduction number and like that number to me is such a strong number particularly because of Renee Rapp's like facial expressions as she delivers this but you know what it's fine we don't have to spend the rest of this episode arguing specifically about that uh <laughs> Nico, we should say at its core, Mean Girls is a teen comedy about high school cliques and, you know, messages um, about bullying and sexism, which was, you know, well-worn territory even back then. What made the Mean Girls, the original movie, noteworthy back in 2004? I mean, again, like going back to this idea that like Sarah Ty and Cassie both said, like it is, it was a bit bad. It was like Mean Girls was kind of like it was, there was teeth there. It was a bit sharp. It was a bit... The original movie, even. Yeah. Yeah, like it gets a turn where everybody in the movie gets a turn to be the villain. You know, there are mm. no... It feels very real for a lot of high school experience where it's like, what if everybody sucks? Like, that kind of feels like the thing. And, like, this is what sort of makes it stand out in its original era, right? It's like there are no... Everybody here is a hero. Everybody here is a villain in their own way where usually it was pretty cut and dry with teen stuff. Mm -hmm. It allowed teens to be, like, messy and complicated and kind of scary and dangerous in a kind of a fun way and this just sort of washes over that with white paint i, I will say sarah ty when we think about the original mean girls um we kind of think about it through nostalgic colored glasses quite a bit but not everything that we hold dear in our youth stands up right now to the test of you know like modern day do you think the original holds up now I mean, it is a film I revisit a lot because I love how it's just like fully enshrined in this McBling, Juicy Couture, aspirational, <laughs> consumptive, white femininity of the 2000s era. Yes. And a lot of my nostalgia for the film is the way that it like codes characters with that costuming and that makeup that's like very spot on. And I think like if you're going to do critique, you have to care enough about the thing you're critiquing to know it well. And mm. I think that's what Mean Girls does well. Like there's a there's a moment in the new Mean Girls where new Katie Heron, now fully plastic, she's touching up her her makeup in a compact and it's an elf compact. And I'm like, sorry, but the plastics would not be using elf. Like these girls are Lancome Juicy Tubes girls. Where are their <laughs> Dior lip oils? Like it really made me mad. And I think like, as, as far as like the original Mean Girls, as we've been talking about, it, it's super sharp. It's super biting for better or for worse. You know, Tina Fey and her racism, her internalized misogyny. I think this new work kind of mm. only solidifies like 
the fact that the original was at least biting in that way. It's so scared to like offend audiences. It like they took away the unfriendly black hotties. Like, come on. This is literally <laughs> about mean girls. That is one of the cliques that they did take away for this new invention. And one goes, why? Why? You kind of really needed that. Cassie, what it's about anti-black. you? It's anti-black. <laughs> it's anti-black to have the unfriendly black hotties written out of the show. Cassie, yes. what about you? Does does How do you think the I- old mean girl stands up? I, I agree with uh, Sarah Ty's point. I think that's what really struck me when I was watching it was how forced the diversity casting in this movie was. It mm. felt like we threw out all realism or like opportunity for commentary and satire in order to uh, fill this very like synthetic kind of diversity mm. quota where every single person at this school checks a certain box and they're all standing next to each other. And I think they've really uh, overlooked realism for that. And that's also what we liked about the first movie, or at least what I liked about it, was that it l- really leaned into satirizing a lot of these cliques and groups that by nature have a bit of a, a racial component to them and I Mm. think that was very real for a lot of people and now I think they've also um like they've put so much on on having everybody be woke that it's taking a lot of bite out of it like they're not really willing to paint Janice as a bad character anymore they're Mm. uplifting her because they've like laden her with so many diversity traits that they're no longer able to be like also she was secretly the meanest of the girls uh, Nico, just last question on this whole Mean Girls story, which is that ultimately the point of these remakes is to connect the franchise with a new generation of people. I think Mean Girls is interesting because it is a movie that has kind of stood the test of time and has been passed down to new generations without even needing a remake. So I'm curious whether you think this new take on Mean Girls is is fresh enough to compete with the original in terms of the place it's going to hold. No. Next question. <laughs> no, it was, you know, when I saw it in the theater, I was the lone person in my 40s amongst a bunch of people that were probably in their 20s. So yeah. I was like an adult being like, these kids, you know, and every time a song came on, they sure. were like visibly upset about it. And like, and but they were cheering at the iconic lines, which are just sort of like recreated, right? Like yeah. the get in loser line is here, but it's shorter now. And like, there's all mm. the iconic things that have been memefied to death and back. Yeah. And it's just like, well, those things will persist regardless. So what is new here that a new generation is going to be like this is our take on it because it's not going to be the boring songs that everybody doesn't like other than you apologies not everybody (laughs) some people like but it was just like the whole time i was watching it waiting for this like what's the new thing that a new generation is going to be like this is our takeaway from this and i did not see it the whole time maybe it's john ham (laughs) i sure hope it is not john ham okay we're gonna leave it there and we're gonna switch gears to this Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real-life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat, Come to Life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. The very first night from Red Taylor's version, 
Look, Taylor Swift is in the news again. It is worth talking about. Okay, last week, New York Times published an op-ed about this long-running subset of fans who read queerness into Taylor Swift's lyrics and images and career. And according to this reading, Taylor Swift has been dropping what could be read as hints that she's bi. Now, the point of this conversation isn't to speculate. That's not what we're going to do. It's actually to ask if that New York Times piece was speculating or maybe doing something else. There was something about this piece that rubbed a lot of critics the wrong way. Taylor herself has not responded publicly to the op-ed. But CNN had this report that said the people close to her, I don't know what that means, but people close to her um, are not happy with it. Nico, I'll start with you on this one. You've read this piece. What was your reaction? I'm going to preface my feelings on this with two different things. Okay. First of all, I'm coming to this as a queer person and as a trans and as a trans woman. Um, this is sort of where my opinion on this comes from. Mm. And also, I think I want to make it extremely clear that there is nothing wrong with Taylor potentially being queer. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of talk at like you know the speculation as to sexuality, speculating as to famous people's sexuality is a thing that happens all the time. It's just that we have sort of created this normal where like if someone is cis, if someone is het, if someone is white or whatever, like these are these norms that we've created in media, and like people speculate about the sexuality of famous people all the time. Whenever mm-hmm. we speculate as to who they're dating or whatever, like that is speculating at someone's sexuality whether we like it or not. This is a thing that happens all the time. What I don't like about this piece, there's a lot that I don't like. First of all, it opens with this very real story of someone who almost committed suicide and did not, thankfully. Charlie Wright, who's a real person. Yes, is a a country artist and a fame and a real person who specifically was was going to commit suicide because she was scared about her identity in the genre that she's in. Hmm. Now, that story sort of clumsily segues into 5,000 words about Taylor Swift. We never tie back into why we're talking about that in the intro. So it's already using this weird trope and a lot of really distasteful things to get into this piece and doesn't really explain why. And then it does a lot of, it goes beyond speculating or wondering or doing a queer reading of Taylor and starts doing this sort of red string on a, on a bulletin board mm-hmm. and taking all these conspiracy theories. It's Charlie Day. It's like the Charlie Day meme, the meme of like yeah. somebody going like this, right? Of like connecting all these ideas and being like well look at this dress and look at these words and it's like a it's a willful reading of lyrics to support a point and it kind of goes beyond you know a queer reading and gets into this like kind of distasteful like well this is what i'm seeing here and this Mm. is the truth and this is what she's trying to say and it's like is she or is this what you want her to say? And those are two different things. And it kind of never really solidifies that. And it just kind of gets to this thing where it's like, this is kind of a little bit too far. Like it feels very conspiracy theory more than anything. Okay. So I, I'm a, I'm a cis straight man. I don't really have, um, I don't, I, I think my position on this comes from an entirely different place, but reading that piece, my interpretation of it was that it was a piece about not foreclosing the possibility of reading queerness into an artist. So at least like that's, that's the best of possible version of what that piece could be. I'd like to think that in 2024, a lot of us get why outing people who haven't made their sexuality public is considered to be just like a really big no-no. Anna Marks, who's the writer of this op-ed, um, in the piece, they, they, they wrote this quote, Every time an artist signals queerness and that transmission falls on deaf ears, that signal dies. Recognizing the possibility of queerness while being conscious of the difference between possibility and certainty keeps that signal alive. Sarah Tai, does that defense make sense to you at all? No. Okay. Anna, Anna, you're lost in the sauce. I get it. 
as a lifelong Mariah Carey fan, I love to playfully read into her relationship with the brat. I should also say I'm queer as well. Um, but this was giving, do you guys know the movie, The Number 23, with Jim Carrey? I, yeah, I, regrettably I do. Yes. This is that. It's like sincerely reclaiming bisexual lighting instead of like letting it be a fun thing that we do in private and not in an op-ed for the New York Times. And I see what you guys are doing and you guys are on a list and a list is not where you want to be. But I think that like this idea of like playfully reading queer subtext from like cultural products, cultural figures, being confused as actual queer content, as actual queer artistry is truly so dumb. Like if you are listening to this and you're like, maybe I'll read it, do not read it. Save yourself the time. Just bang your head against the wall. That will take less time. You know, it's it's so this was so fr- it took me back to like undergrad when I was in women's studies classes surrounded by white women who made arguments like this. Mm. Like it really, really frustrates me. Like my gay ass can watch Creed's 2001 halftime show as many times as I want. As happy as that makes me, as transcendental as it feels for me specifically, that does not make Scott stop mother. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? I've- and like. <laughs> No one has what? ever said Come the on. phrase Scott Stapp being mother ever before. Well, it was going to be me. It was going to be, it was, out of all people, it was absolutely <laughs> going to be you. Cassie, I'm going to come back to you in just a moment here. But Nico, if I just can just put this back to you um, for a moment. When we think about the way that we talk about Taylor Swift, who become, has become a site for all these things. Um, I, when I read this piece, I go, if this piece was in like the Paris Review, I think we'd be dealing with it differently. You know what I mean? It, it felt like a like a poetics reading as opposed to um, something that we usually expect in the New York Times. I think placing in the New York Times made it feel like public speculation as opposed to a poetics relationship to an artist's career. Am I out to lunch on that? I might be. I mean, I don't. I think. I don't think you're entirely off base. I mean, that was a lot of people's response to it was like, I can't believe this is in the New York Times. And like, I mean, have you read the New York Times? Because like, maybe this is why this is in the New York. It's not like the New York Times is not the paper that we all want to pretend it is, which is Mm -hmm. like, you know, it's the old gray lady. We sort of think of it as like this prestigious place. But like, if you read the New York Times in the regular, not that good all the time. And like, it is... You're, if it was anywhere else, and I think if it, if if the writing had been a little bit stronger, and if it had connected the themes in a little bit more clear way, and it had been less, if she had used the full name of Taylor Swift, including her middle name, less, and made it seem like she has a parasocial <laughs> relationship with her, mm-hmm. it would have felt differently, right? But I think mm. it being in the New York Times specifically, it sort of creates this like underlying subtext that just sort of adds to people's discomfort with it. Uh, Cassie, real quick, I mentioned the people musing about the sexuality of their favorite artists or picking apart song lyrics for clues. That's not anything new. Do you see this op-ed being anything different than that? Not really. I think I think what's actually really uh, you know upsetting about this whole thing was that it's such an obvious clickbait kind of rage economy strategy that mm. uh, really highlights how out of touch the New York Times is, like how they think that now getting the clicks and getting the rage and getting the the views is to kind of antagonize these these uh public figures when they don't understand now that actually the relationship that 
the fan base has with the with the person that they like is so much more personal that they're not interested in digging through their personal mm. life and violating their privacy. That's no longer the type of parasocial relationships that we have anymore in, in these types of fandoms. And last time I was on the show, we talked about Hassan Minaj and the piece that took him down. Just these pieces that come out out of nowhere, like no one was asking questions about these things in the first place. It wasn't mm. related to an event that just happened. Mm. The fact that they're just like, Let's go through a checklist of like, let's see if this will make people angry or not. Let's put it out there. It's very gross, I think. So, okay, we got a couple of minutes left. We're going to power through some recommendations because I want each of you to give me something that I should take into my weekend. Sarah Tai, you first. What do you got? I would recommend that everyone watch the hearings happening at The Hog right now where South Africa is suing Israel and the International Court of Justice. Hmm. You can watch it in full online on YouTube. It's on Al Jazeera's page, Associated Press's page. Um, I think that it's really important that we remain vigilant in, at the very least, witnessing this moment right now. Cassie, what about you? What do you got? Um, I've been reading fiction to get away from the news. Uh, so I've been reading Piranesi by Susanna Clark. It's really a wonderful, magical, realism kind of story. Is it a relatively new novel or is it has it been around for a little while? I think it's uh, it came out around the times of the lockdown. Okay. So just a year or so. Nico, 30 seconds to you. Um, I know we all have Marvel fatigue, but I've been watching Marvel's Echo on Disney Plus, and it's really fun, and I like it, and I like the cast, and there's a little mini Reservation Dogs reunion on the show, which I also enjoy, and it is a good time, uh, and that's what I've been watching, and that's what I recommend. That's a perfect place to leave it. Sarah Ty Black, Nico Stratus, Cassie Cow, thank you so much for your time, y'all. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Of course. Sarah Ty Black is a freelance culture critic. Cassie Cow is a comedian and TV writer. And Nico Stratus is a culture critic who writes a substack, Anxiety Shark. That is it for the podcast today. Listen, before we go, now is the time I get to tell you about the incredible folks who help get the show on the air. Commotion is produced by Stuart Berman, Ty Callender, Dean Kim, Jane Vancouverden, Jess Lowe, Nikki Manfredi. Our digital producers are Amelia Ekbal and Shuli Grossman Gray. Our directors this week are Daniel Grogan and Jane Vancouverden. Our engineer is Tom Hashmi. The senior producer is John Perry. And McKeegan is the executive producer. Me? I'm just some guy, but my name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. It's been a pleasure being with you this week. I'm going to be around next week. If you're going to be around, I would love to see you then. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.